to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the cessation of hostilities between the Ethiopian government and the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. Also going to be uh, touching on the tragic, deadly uh, stampede in South Korea and putting that in its proper historical, political and cultural context. Also going to be talking about the connections between international finance capital and neocolonialism on the African continent. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard of time we'll be taking your calls but before we can move on jackie tell them what's on your mind well cnn reports that president joe biden warned that the future of the nation's democracy could rest on next week's midterm elections he said quote we can't take democracy for granted any longer he said this in a speech that he delivered from union station here in washington dc which is a few blocks from the u.s capitol where a mob attempted to interrupt the certification of the 2020 election he went on to say as i stand here today there are candidates running for every level of office in america for governor for congress for attorney general for secretary of state who won't commit to accepting the results of the elections therein That is the path to chaos in America. It's unprecedented. It's unlawful. It's un-American. At a speech the day before that was given at some rich person's oceanfront mansion in Florida, Biden said, how can you say that you, in fact, care about democracy when you deny the existence of a win? The only way you could win is either you win or the other guy cheated. This has not happened since the Civil War. It sounds like hyperbole, but it hasn't happened since then as bad as it is now. And you see... This is why I bring up the long history of white supremacist political violence and terrorism that has been carried out in this country, not because I hope it shames the white supremacists who usually perpetuate that violence against the people they target, who they believe are threats to their status quo. No, I bring up this history all the time because the members of the allegedly better political party exaggerate the present crisis, whatever the present crisis is, by being just as dismissive of this history of white supremacist political violence and terrorism as their white supremacist opponents are. They just do it for different reasons. Obviously, the white supremacists in the GOP ignore this history because they don't want to admit that their power is built on this history of organized racial political violence and terrorism. But the white supremacists and the class enemies of the people in the Democratic Party, they also ignore this history. And now they act as if January 6th was the first time that organized political violence has ever occurred, that people ever responded violently to an election to scare people into voting for them to stop the Republicans. You see, because the truth is that January 6th is nothing compared to the events like the attack by the White League on November 3rd, 1874, when a white supremacist paramilitary group that happened to be affiliated with the Democratic Party at the time assaulted black voters in Barbour County, Alabama. The attack caused the deaths of seven African-Americans and 70 others were wounded And more than 1,000 African-Americans were driven away from the polls due to the violence. 
or when white supremacists responded violently to the biracial readjuster party that controlled the city council seats in the majority African-American city of Danville, Virginia, in 1882. The attack by white supremacists left four black and one white man dead. In the aftermath, armed white men patrolled the streets of Danville, a town that is two hours west of my hometown, by the way, preventing most African-Americans from voting and allowing the racist Democratic Party to regain political power in the town. And these acts of organized white supremacist political violence and terrorism were not isolated. Similar events took place in Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, and South Carolina during the Reconstruction period specifically. But we know that white supremacists carry out organized racist political violence and terrorism repeatedly all over this country, long after the Reconstruction era was destroyed. And you know, maybe the reason the Democrats don't ever mention this history, because much of it was carried out by members of or on behalf of the Democratic Party at the time, but this is easy enough to parse out if you really care about the importance of this history in shaping American politics today, and you really want to change that dynamic. Simply put, the political party affiliation of the terrorists was not the thing that drove their violence. It was white supremacy and their desire to maintain that oppressive social order through that violence. Furthermore, history also reveals that those mostly Southern Democrats fled the Democratic Party en masse to the Republican Party when the Democratic Party president, Lyndon Johnson, signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And Johnson is even noted to have said to his special assistant and later renowned journalist, Bill Moyers, after he signed that bill that, quote, I think we just delivered the South to the Republican Party for a long time to come. But here we are, Contending with what I think is the obvious outcome of both political parties, ignoring the very long history of white supremacist organized political violence and terrorism in America. Disgraced former CNN host Chris Cuomo, now blogging for News Nation, even said that, quote, Biden emphasized that there is no place for violence in America, yet it is in Every place, it is absolutely a part of our fabric because that's how too many want it. And he's not lying. Everybody in politics do seem to want this political violence because it serves their purposes for different reasons. Whether the GOP is encouraging armed poll watchers to carry on the tradition of intimidating black voters at voting stations or the head shamer in chief, Barack Obama, is telling people to shut up and be civil while they listen to him lie to them about why they should keep voting for the Democrats who do nothing for them during his desperate campaign rallies ahead of these midterms, everyone in power benefits from ignoring how this country's violence has actually shaped its politics. And from Afghanistan to Korea to Africa, people around the world have also experienced white supremacist and imperialist organized political violence from the U.S. that stems directly from the foundation of violence this country was established on. Ignoring this very long and very relevant history of organized white supremacist political violence and terrorism in this country absolutely does work for both political parties. It just doesn't work for anybody else. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content.
And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Nebigu Asfal, co-founder of the Ethiopian American Development Council. Nebigu, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Sean Jackson. Absolutely. And Nebigu, uh, it appears that there finally will be a cessation or a coming to an end of two years of war in the Horn of Africa as the Ethiopian government has signed a truce with the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front or the TPL. F. Um, Ola Segun Obasanjo, uh, the African Union's high representative uh, for the Horn of Africa, says was quoted saying, quote, both parties in the Ethiopian conflict have formally agreed to the cessation of hostilities, as well as to systematic, orderly, smooth and coordinated disarmament, restoration of law and order, restoration of services, unhindered access to humanitarian supplies and protection of civilians. Now, uh, this comes as a result of ongoing talks between between the two parties in South Africa. And uh, to begin, Nebiu, uh, I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, what do we know about uh, uh, what's contained in this truce uh, at this point? And uh, what do you think it means for uh, uh, dynamics within the Horn of Africa at this point? Yeah. First of all, I just want to say thank you for covering this. Such a monumental milestone. And the mainstream media is completely silent today on this. Uh, but this is a big deal. This is a, a huge um, milestone in the Horn of Africa as the a permanent cessation of hostility signed by the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People Liberation Front. And uh, basically, uh, this was something that was uh, facilitated by the African Union. And so it was an African solution by Africans and that it was successful uh, because, um, you know, Ethiopia insisted that the West should stop interfering. And, and this was all handled by African elders, you know. Uh, so I think that 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 is the reason for its success. Um, yesterday, the Ethiopian government and the TPLF released a, a joint statement on the agreement. Uh, much of the details yet to be seen, but the agreement had a 12 point. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's it shows a well intended effort by both parties to reach a mutually acceptable compromise, uh, especially on sensitive issues involving administration. Um, justice, political setup, security, um, you know, things like that. Of course, it remains to be seen how it will be implemented, but there's no doubt that both parties were serious about uh, what they agreed to. Um, but what what's really interesting is that um, the Ethiopian government basically uh, got 100% of what it wanted, and, 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 and this was uh, uh, more of... Uh, uh, a concession by the rebel forces as they are agreeing to uh, demobilize, disarm, and submit to the federal government. So the province, the region of Tigray, where this rebellion w was happening, um, will be uh, transferred to the authorities of the Ethiopian federal government. Um, in a sense, um, it will be eliminating this uh, TPLF uh, rebel force 
that have been so far backed uh, by the West. So it's a great day. Yeah, it is a great day that this was a uh, was the result of uh, Africans um, creating their own solutions. I do wonder what the a uh, part of this uh, agreement that does ban um, uh, or, or lifts the ban on the TPLF uh, being a political party, because now it will be recognized as a political party again. What do you think the long term implications for that will be? Yeah, I mean, obviously that's that's the part that we're all kind of scratching our head about. Um, that you know we, uh, I think the Ethiopian people um, and and the diaspora just really wanted to see the complete end of the TPLF. This is uh, an entity that has been around for forty years that have uh, served as a proxy to destabilize the whole region and. You know, leading up to this peace talks, there was a significant military victory that the Ethiopian forces were um, having and that the TPLF forces uh, are on the run and they've lost 99 percent of their territory they once held. And they were basically surrounded in one city, the capital of Tigray. So um, we felt that the military victory was at hand. Uh, but I know there was a lot of pressure from the West on the Ethiopian government to negotiate. So, you know, they felt that this is the best deal they can get where they, they can get the West off their back um, and at the same time demilitarize the TPLF. Um, but, you know, at least without their guns, um, the TPLF would be less of a threat, I would imagine. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how it turns out. But obviously you're, you're uh, right on point there uh, with your assessment. Yeah, and there's another aspect of this I really wanted to to highlight, uh, Nebu, and that's the role of social movements. Because all around the world, we saw uh, uh, mass demonstrations uh, happening, calling for you know the end to uh, uh, the U.S. role in uh, stoking this two-year war and uh, the sanctions against Ethiopia and things like that. Certainly, we had them here uh, in the United States, uh, also uh, in different parts of the world as well. Uh, uh, certainly the the no more movement was a big part of that and uh, that movement was attacked and correct me if I'm wrong never you but I believe you had your own uh, Twitter account uh, 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 basically deleted for no real reason uh, yourself along with others like a friend of the show uh, Simon Tesfamerium and so how how important do you see the role of uh, uh, the social movement aspect of this sort of uh, uh, contributing to uh, uh, this whole true situation? Yeah, Sean, a hundred percent. The no more movement and this grassroots movements are the reason why that why this conflict is ending this way. Uh, because the playbook that was u- being used on Ethiopia was the same playbook that was used on Libya and Syria, and and it would have ended up with war intervention and potential this dis- this dis- disassemblement of Ethiopia. All right. Um, and it was the same, the same humanitarian imperialism that was being used, weaponizing humanitarian issues, um, you know, creating the stories about genocide and atrocities, uh, which is a, a pretext for what they call R2P, responsibility to protect, uh, that, that would basically give authority or justification for military intervention. 
That's what was being used in Libya, and that was what was being used in Ethiopia. But we saw what coming. Uh, the Ethiopian people, the Eritrean people, um, are known, you know, to resist uh, uh, foreign Western intervention in the past, and and they stuck together, and they saw what coming, and that's where this grassroots movements came out, especially the no more grassroots movement. Responding to the fake news that was being spewed for the past two years to facilitate basically a neo-colonial agenda of the foreign forces that were meddling in the Ethiopian conflict, the whole Western world and their institutions, including the United Nations, were coming down on Ethiopia. 17 Security Council meetings, sanctions, threats, um, the media just almost, um, they never talk about Africa, but they've been on Ethiopia for two years, right? Uh, telling the world uh, this, this government is going to genocide the people and we need to go and save them, right? That fell on its face because of this grassroots movement. Uh, we said no more. Um, and, 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 and this worked. It worked. It mobilized not just the Ethiopian and Eritrean community, but it mobilized other pro-peace uh, movements and and people because this is the shared pain of the global south. So I think Ethiopia should be a big lesson where a success where people united can overcome, um, you know, and others with, with common cause. Um, the movement is, is inclusive enough to involve anyone in the world really with uh, similar principles um, and, and, and it can revitalize some dormant movements and, and really bring hope to all oppressed people across the global south. We have the numbers. Uh, we are the majority in this globe. Um, and, and if united, uh, you know, we can resist uh, all um, this dominations of, of, of people that have economic and other geopolitical interests and really don't care about the lives lost with this wars that they're pushing on us. Absolutely. And within that, Nebiu, uh, uh, one thing that I, I, I appreciated about uh, the No More movement is the kind of pan-African character that it had. And yeah. so, you know, you had Ethiopians and Eritreans. Uh, there were Somali folks there. There were black Americans. You know, uh, it was really uh, uh, it felt like a, a diaspora wide effort in a sense to 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 really push for this. And I feel like that's a, a sort of important note to, to strike. Uh, not just in terms of the Horn of Africa, but, you know, given some of the other developments we see happening on the continent. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yes. This was a movement of the African diaspora, Pan-African. It's almost like the rebirth of the Pan-African movement, what we saw back in the 60s, right? Um, that's really what's happening. Um, you know, in fact, when we did the big global rally um, a year ago in November, it's actually our one-year anniversary, for the No More Movement, when we launched, it was over 30 cities globally that hosted uh, a protest. And I'm talking about, you know, from Detroit to Atlanta, uh, to the Caribbean, to Jamaica, um, to obviously Ethiopia, uh, and other African countries like Uganda, South Africa. I mean, it was, you know, in Europe and London and Geneva, um, you know, it was all over and it was a global movement. And like you said, this wasn't just Ethiopians and Eritreans, you know, especially in the United States. We had uh, a lot of help from the African-American community that came out with us in solidarity, uh, the Jamaicans and, and the Caribbean, uh, and, and obviously all Africans, Africans from, uh, you know, 
dozens and dozens of African countries were releasing videos saying, we stand with Ethiopia. The attack on Ethiopia is an attack on Africa. That's the, the, the theme, is an attack on one, is an attack on all of us. And together we came and, and, and we you know, became a big threat to countering this global media and this global hybrid warfare. We countered it that, that they started censoring the heads and the, the activists that, that, that were basically active, activating all these communities. And yes, uh, many of us were banned from, from Twitter, even though we were proponing uh, peace. Uh, but you know what? We prevailed. And, and that's the thing is that uh, we have to go back and look at how this movement was done in the last two years, how it, it overcame this massive war machine, uh, this massive global disinformation machine. We overcome. We, we won. The people power. And this is something that should be used as a good example and as a template for all oppressed people across the global south. Yeah, absolutely. So what should we be uh, looking for as, you know, this agreement unfolds? Because it, it actually seems to have been uh, a little bit, it fell a little bit short in regard to some regions in the area that were also involved in the agreement. So what do we have to continue to look for uh, to stay on the lookout for as this agreement unfolds? Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we, you know, we, we, we should be on the, uh, on the lookout. One, that the agreement, especially the disarmament of the TPLA forces is, is, is uh, carried through as, as planned. Um, we want to uh, continue to watch uh, the, situa- the regional situation with Eritrea. Eritrea has been the number one target uh, in this, um, so we want to make sure that the, um, the peace and the solidarity between the two countries uh, continues. And and also within Ethiopia, um, I know there was um, some 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 points like the the issues with the Amhara regions that that were previously annexed by Tigray, going back to the uh, Amhara people. Uh, there was a lot of wrongs that were done internally within Ethiopia that, that will need to be made right uh, for the indigenous people of the lands. Um, this is what I would say, though. Um, we need to keep the West out of it. These are internal issues within Ethiopia that Ethiopians are capable of handling, right? Just like how when we left this alone to Africa, the Africans, they, they got the deal done, right? So, And the African Union has continued um, to stay behind the Ethiopian people, and they said they will offer any help that they need. So we just need to keep pushing the the, the notion that Africans can the, the the idea that Africans can solve their own problems, Ethiopians can solve their own problems, and particularly in this internal issues, boundary issues. Really, uh, we should enable, encourage, and help the Ethiopians solve their own problems. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Nebu, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, 
social and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a recent tragic surge that took place in South Korea. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Yureem, member of Nodu Doll for Korean Community Development. Yureem, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me today. Yes, and thank you for joining us, Yureem. And, you know, uh, recently in Itaewon in South Korea, reportedly more than 100,000 uh, people, mostly young people, teens and people in their early 20s, uh, uh, filled an area for planned Halloween festivities. And at a certain point, there was a, a surge or, or a stampede that uh, uh, ended up in the deaths of more than 100 people, according to to reports. And there's uh, a lot of questions about uh, uh, just what happened and uh, why there wasn't a stronger police presence, why there wasn't sort of more uh, a deeper structured organization of the event. And there's actually uh, quite a bit of historical and cultural context that is relevant to what happened here, Yareem. But uh, before we get to that, I-, I was hoping you could help us understand what happened uh, up in the lead up to this event itself. And from your perspective, why did things play out the way they did? Yeah, absolutely. So as of today, 156 people have been killed due to this crowd surge and about 151 have been injured. And what happened was, so the police were getting called four hours before people started to be um Joining the area in Itaewon, there were calls made. Um, there were calls made as early as 6:34 p.m. that there are people waiting in line to get into clubs, people coming down from the streets above, people coming in from the Itaewon station, and all of them just went into the alleyway where the crowd surge took place. And the people were calling to ask for crowd control at different entrances of the alley because there were no police or crowd control presence to be found. And around 8 p.m., that's when most calls were made. And around 10 p.m. on the 28th um, of October, that's when people started to really, really panic. And um, that's when a lot of people um, started to um, be killed due to the crowd surge. So that's what happened leading up to it. And uh, I can also tell you more about the past gatherings that happened in Itaewon and the crowd control that took place. But on the night, that's, uh, that's what happened, yes. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to know, you know, these past gatherings. And also, Yerim, I'm sure people are are wondering, why are we talking about this horrible thing? It's terrible, of course, but basically the result of a Halloween uh, celebration uh, that wouldn't seem noteworthy. But this neighborhood in which the crowd surge happened actually has a history involving the occupation of Korea by both Japan and the U.S. So what does this event? have to do about the presence uh, or have to do with the presence of foreign troops uh, that shaped the neighborhood? Right. So from 1910 to 1945, Yongsan was occupied as the uh, military base for the Japanese colonial army. And following Japan's defeat in World War II, that's when the U.S. military moved into the base and occupied it. So since 1910, Koreans couldn't step a foot into the military base. 
And there's about 500 acres of this land of the Yongsan base. And Itaewon was then later redeveloped in the 1990s as a red light district for the U.S. troops stationed in Yongsan. And it was the U.S. headquarters, a military headquarters until 2018, where it relocated to the newly built $11 billion Camp Humphrey base in Pyeongtaek. And because of this relocation, the U.S. military is now in the process of giving back the land to the South Korean government. And since um, there is now about 35% of the 500 acres of the land that has been returned, and it is going straight into the pockets of developers, they have been looking to turn this into another commercial district with high-rise apartments, hotels, and entertainment sites. And because of that, This place is always going through construction, and it's really hard for public transportation to go in and out to begin with. That's where a lot of people heavily rely on the subway, and that's where more than 100,000 people came to Itaewon from on this night. Um, So that's a little bit of history behind uh, the the geographical and cultural area of Itaewon. And... Um, Itaewon is now known as like an international district and it's a highly gentrified place where people like late Samsung chairman Igoni and K-pop, K-pop stars reside in or nearby. And among young people in Korea, it's known as a hot place, quote-unquote hot place, or hot prayer, which is a place referred by young Koreans that's popular and trendy to go. Um, and follow, again, a, a little bit of the uh, history following the Korean War, Itaewon was developed as a commercial district, right? And so they were selling clothes, commercial sex, there were bars, international grocery markets. And uh, this place also suffered the recession in the 90s. So a lot of commercial sex places located on this hill called Hooker Hill were also cracked down by the government that have been there. And after the pandemic, a lot of businesses like coffee shops and restaurants closed. So a lot of uh, nightclubs came in from 2020 to now. Uh, And that's when, again, it became even more popular among young people to go to. Yeah. And as I noted earlier, Yareem, one of the core questions that people are asking as it relates to this tragedy is around that of uh, crowd control. And there's a direct connection here with South Korea's uh, right wing president, uh, Yoon Suk-yeol. And, uh, you know, how did his presence in Yongsong, which, you know, contains Itaewon, the place that we're discussing, how uh, does his presence there uh, potentially contribute to the crowd control issue? that ensued there. And uh, we've seen recent protests actually against the Yoon administration. And also I'm wondering if you see this tragedy as uh, potentially affecting his presidency and uh, the movement that sort of coalesced against him. Oh, absolutely. I would say personally that it has everything to do with Yoon's uh, presidency. And Yoon Sagar moved his presidential office from the historic Blue House, which had been the presidential office since 1948, to the Yongsan district, where Itaewon is located. When he moved, there wasn't any particular or clear decision as to why he moved. He just wanted to commute from his uh, home in Sacho-dong to the Yongsan district every day. 
And over 700 Yongsan Police Department staff staff are required and devoted to unit security on a daily basis. So that means when does his daily commute in the morning and at night, uh, that's how many people are surrounding him. And it's been causing traffic congestion. So people have been complaining about this unnecessary move uh, that is requiring so many resources. And on the night of October 28th, going into the morning of October 29th, only initially the reports are saying 200 police were sent. But the day after that, people are finding out that only actually 130 staff were sent for quote-unquote crime management in Itaewon. So none of them were actually tasked with safety control or cloud control. They went in, some of them in plain clothes, to do ID checks and drug searches. But then a day after that, people are finding out that actually only 37 police members were sent. Not the night before, but during the night. Uh, none of them, again, tasked with crowd control. So people are talking about this very disproportionately allocated resources that are being used by the UN administration. And um, even on the night that people were calling, like the local district uh, police uh, office or the Yongsan police office, most of them had already been tasked with UN security. So there were staff shortages in Yongsan to begin with. And that is a big, big reason as to why people couldn't get help early on. Again, people were already calling at 6.34 p.m. asking for help, saying that there will be a huge tragedy if no one comes. So that's partially the reason as to why uh, Yung's administration really failed the people this night. And it hasn't been uh, an issue with uh, the government failing the people just with this administration. I think this calls into question uh, the the history of occupation in Korea by Japan and the U.S. and the influence of the U.S. military on the government in Korea. Do you think that there is a prioritization of serving the U.S. military over the Korean people in this incident, along with the history of other incidents that happened before it that you talked uh, talked about earlier, uh, points to that, that the U.S. military is prioritized by the Korean government over the people of Korea? Yes, yes. Again, the Yongsan military base um, has this area nearby, Itaewon, Hanmandong, like all of these places had are always prioritized not only families of U.S. soldiers or U.S. officials, but also foreigners. There used to be apartment buildings in this area that were only open to foreigners, U.S. military officials, and U.S. officials. So, um, again, um, so not only does it prioritize housing for non-Korean people in this area, but also in, six, in uh, 2004, the government had to clean up like uh, high levels of benzene and petroleum hydrocarbons in areas adjacent to the Yongsan base because there were environmental reports coming out that the military base is heavily, heavily poisoning the area. So in these areas of housing and also environmental issues, the country continues to prioritize uh, people of the Yongsan military base and uh, U.S. officials in this area over the safety of Korean people always. Yeah. And a lot of people um, were reporting that there were U.S. troops 
coming out to help, but none of them really helped. They came really late. Um, so even if they're really close to this, what they deem as a safe place to go to, because there is a U.S. military base here, people are, I think, I think the people at large are generally reckoning with how they're not really actually there for the people and they're not actually serving the country, but they're there for their own interests. I think people are starting to connect the dots as they're seeing how utterly um, they failed the people that night, uh, both from the local police, federal police, and the U.S. troops that came to the site to help. Yeah, and you know, what compounds the tragedy here, Yareem, is the fact that it just didn't need to happen. I mean, it was known that this uh, uh, Halloween event was going to take place. Uh, it was understood this was going to be popping. There was going to be a lot of people. But it just seems that uh, uh, the people who should have uh, been really being uh, putting a lot of energy and, and capacity into the safety of the attendees uh, simply were derelict in their duty. And so uh, from your perspective, who should be held accountable for what? happened here uh, uh, in Taiwan and how to prevent this kind of thing in the future? Mm -hmm. I think to name first, uh, there's a lot, but to name a few central figures who are responsible for this, I would go with the Yongsan district, the mayor of the Yongsan district. In the past, they usually held joint gatherings with the district, the police, and the fire departments to do safety briefings together. This year, there was no joint meeting. There was no collaboration or shared responsibility among the district, the police department, and the fire department. And the day that the safety briefing was held, the mayor was actually at a picnic. And this is the same mayor from a previous interview saying that, you know, Itaewon is usually known for the Halloween weekend. And also there's this international festival that's held. So she was always mindful of the safety concerns. But she was at a picnic. So this year, for the first time, only the deputy mayor was present. And again, none of them were tasked with doing crowd control. They were only talking about uh, like traffic control of cars. Again, they didn't barricade the main street like they did last time so people could walk on a larger street, but they didn't barricade it. So cars are still going in and out. Again, cars are already hard to go in and out because there's always construction because of development that's been happening um, before 2018. But it's been speeding up more since the relocation of the military base. So they didn't barricade the cars. So we can start with the district. And the police also had a safety briefing two days before the event, but none of them, again, were tasked with crowd control. They were mainly focused on uh, crime management. They were doing drug searches and ID checks. So none of them actually planned for it. The fire department actually is the, place, the department that worked the most this night. Uh, we're not sure what kind of safety briefings they held, but what we can say is that there was no joint meeting. Um, there was no directive from the president um, to alert the safety concerns about the event. Um, less than two weeks before the Halloween weekend, more than a million people came to the Itaewon Global Village Festival. And there were no deadly um, mass tragedies that took place from this event. So the district and the local uh, forces are capable of implementing safety measures to host 
a gathering of more than a million people, but they failed to do that. So I will start with the mayor of the district or the Yongsan district in general, the local police that only focused on uh, crime management and Ying's administration that is holding up resources where people can't use when they need it most. And the prime minister actually is under a huge backlash from the public right now because he made a joke out of the tragedy in response to a reporter when he was being asked questions about Itaewon and the Itaewon tragedy. So these people have been under fire uh, from the public right now, and people are asking really critical questions about why these things weren't implemented, why safety control or crowd control wasn't handled as well as it always had in the past. And this is just from all angles, if you look at it, it's a failure of public safety and no one should have died as a result. Yeah, definitely. And what does the uh, future for uh, this neighborhood and organizing around uh, the safety of the people in this neighborhood and in Korea in regard to uh, addressing uh, U.S. imperialism and the impact, the influence of the U.S. military in Korea. How do you see uh, people organizing around this event to address that issue? Mm-hmm. I think first and foremost, uh, the U.S. military bases need to evacuate immediately, right? And none of this really would have happened had it not been heavily critically associated with the U.S. military for over a decade, uh, over a century in this country. Um, And it really left a hole on the map when the military base left in 2018. And um, it's going into many, many pockets of the private sector private sector. It's not even being returned to the public. So I think one of the ways we can organize around this is when these acres of land are returned to the country, is it going to the people for their usage, for their uh, betterment of their life, or is it going into the private sector? And if it is, what are they building? What construction is causing this much traffic congestion in an already... uh, like narrow area in the Itaewon area. So I think that's something that people have to organize around. People have been organizing around land development in Itaewon uh, before 2018, but it's um, it's been critically organized even more so than ever. And another thing that people can uh, really, really politicize is that Yoon... Yoon's move to the Yongsan district was a political and militaristic strategy. He wanted to be closer to the military base. He didn't say this directly, but he wants to be closer to the military base and also this area that's now being developed because of the land being returned slowly by the U.S. government. So I think that um, Yoon's move that's causing a lot of resources, like even the police are coming out and saying they're overworked. Uh, Each person is working seven hours extra more since Yoon took uh, the office. So I think that's something that people can organize around. Labor organizations are already uh, routing right now, organizing, going out on the streets, making sure that people are not blaming the victims who went to have a good time this Friday night last week, but that this rage and grief is being redirected to the Yoon administration, the Yongsan district. And uh, But 
again, to your question, one of the main points that people have to go back to is that this area wouldn't have existed in the way that it does now if the Yongzhan military base hadn't been there, right? It goes through iterations of construction, gentrification, um, and residents are the first people to suffer and visitors are the second to suffer. So I think if people can take the steps to really go back to the direct root causes of this tragedy, they will find the military base um, that's responsible for uh, causing this infrastructure failure in this country. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Yareem, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about neo-colonialism, international finance capital, and the necessity of pan-African sovereignty. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Abayomi Azikiwe, the editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation once again. Absolutely. And Abayomi, we often have you on the show to discuss uh, different political developments on the uh, African continent, which has been quite active uh, over uh, the last few years, uh, unfortunately, in a number of ways, uh, seeing a kind of a deepening of uh, political instability uh, in uh, a number of countries with a number of coups uh, that go along with that in countries like Burkina Faso, Chad and, and others that we have discussed. But uh, when one takes a step back and looked at how all of these things have been unfolding, we have to ask the question, well, why does all this happen? Is the old stereotype true that these Africans are just not uh, developed enough uh, intellectually, morally, or politically to actually govern themselves? Or is there something deeper at play? And uh, uh, personally, I would point the finger at a lot of this instability on the legacy of uh, neocolonialism and imperialism on the continent. And you recently spoke to just this issue on a recent webinar called AFRICOM Corporate Dominance Neocolonialism, How Do People Assert Their Humanity and Choices? And this was sponsored by the uh, Pan-African Society Community Forum out of London. And so to begin, Abayomi, I really wanted to uh, get to the systemic root of what we're seeing on the African continent. Later on, I definitely want to talk about uh, the kind of uh, uh, organizing and movement building that has to be done around this. But uh, I I was hoping you could help us understand what is the role of international finance capital in neocolonialism on the African continent and how does it affect what we see there? Well, uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, uh, who was the uh, first uh, prime minister and president of uh, the Republic of Ghana, uh, published a book uh, in 1965 entitled Neocolonialism, the Last Stage of Imperialism. And in this book, uh, he extends uh, Lenin's uh, theory of imperialism, which had been published in 1916, 
uh, during World War One uh, to apply directly uh, to uh, developments on the African continent. There have been a huge upsurge of anti-colonial activity uh, on the African continent against European imperialism, going all the way back uh, to the late 19th century, uh, then, of course, uh, the period leading up to World War One. During World War One, there was a tremendous uh, resistance to African participation in World War One. Now, for example, the Nyasaland Rebellion of 1959, 1915, uh, led by John uh, uh which opposed uh, Africans being constricted into the uh, British uh, colonial military forces uh, involved in World War One, and then after World War Two. Uh, there was a militant, uh, very militant mass movement that, that uh, developed. Uh, a lot of it uh, was, of course, mapped out uh, during the 5th Pan-African Congress in Manchester in October of 1945, which enjoyed the participation of people like uh, Kwame Nkrumah prior to him uh, returning to the Gold Coast and taking office, and people like Jomo Kenyatta and uh, George Padmore, uh, W.B. Du Bois, and uh, many others. And uh, after uh, 1945, there was an acceleration of uh, the anti-colonial struggle in Algeria, uh, in uh, Ghana, and later in Kenya, and of course, uh, sweeping the entire continent in regard to the former Portuguese colonies, uh, the settler colonial regimes in Southern Africa, and so forth. Uh, faced uh, with this uh, tide of resistance on the part of the African peoples, independence uh, was granted. Uh, in numerous states, uh, Libya in 1951, uh, Sudan in 1956, uh, Ghana in 1957, a host of countries uh, in 1960 uh, that were under French and Belgium uh, colonial control. However, uh, according to Nkrumah and many other uh, theorists and practitioners, uh, they developed a new system of control based upon uh, the dominance of international finance capital, and that is to control Africa and other geopolitical regions of the world uh, through economic means, uh, by controlling the price of goods, by, uh, of course, uh, leading uh, these African countries into one-cash crop economies or one-resource uh, uh, economies uh, where uh, the multinational corporations still had dominance over the economic development uh, within these states. So in 1963, uh, when the Organization of African Unity was formed in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, Dr. Nkrumah uh, published a book and issued the book entitled uh, Africa Must Unite. And within that book, he said that uh, unity and unification of Africa was essential uh, to ward off neocolonialism. And then two years later, he did a more detailed study about uh, neocolonialism and its uh, impact on genuine independence and development and unification in Africa. And in that book, he cited uh, the United States uh, as the principal um, perpetuator of neocolonialism uh, in the world, in Africa as well as in the world. And uh, he makes it very clear uh, that Washington and Wall Street uh, were the main foes uh, of the African people in their struggle for genuine independence uh, and unification. Now, four months after he published that book, uh, his government was overthrown uh, at the aegis of the U.S. Uh, Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. State Department in partnership with other imperialist countries and uh, agents of neocolonialism inside uh, the Ghana military, uh, civil service, and police. Uh, so since that time period, uh, 
not much has changed. Uh, there's been uh, more independent African countries that have gained uh, their uh, liberation. However, Africa still remains in a dependent and dominated uh, situation uh, as it relates uh, to international finance capital. A good example of this, of course, is the recent uh, military coup d'etats that have taken place in West Africa. In Guinea-Conakry, for example, uh, where the military regime there, uh, which took power about two years ago, uh, said uh, that they wanted the mining industries uh, that were working in the iron ore and bauxite sectors, as well as uh, gold mines, uh, to invest in other uh, industries inside the country. Of course, there was no response from these multinational corporations because they don't want to uh, risk their windfall profits uh, in their extractive uh, practices against Africa. So this is continuing today. Uh, we can see uh, all over Africa, uh, whether it's in Zimbabwe, uh, where sanctions have been imposed, whether it's in Ethiopia, uh, where the government has been subjected uh, to a destabilization campaign in the effort to overthrow uh, the state there. Uh, neocolonialism is still very much in force in Africa. Look at the U.S. Africa Command, uh, for example. This is a clear modern manifestation of neocolonialism and imperialism in Africa. Yeah, definitely, Abayomi, because I wanted to ask you the the role of militarism, U.S. militarism, uh, and the expansion of NATO in the uh, the insistence or the, the entrenchment of neocolonialism on the continent. What role has NATO played, and now AFRICOM, and why is that military component so important in this conversation in the destabilization of so many African nations, uh, the establishment and the maintenance of neocolonialism, and how we respond to that? Yes, well, we can see clearly uh, that uh, the false uh, pretext under which uh, the U.S. Africa Command uh, was formed uh, and presented in 2007 and enacted in 2008 uh, has been exposed. Uh, they claimed initially they were interested in strengthening and enhancing the security and uh, stability of independent African states. Uh, in reality, uh, the formation of AFRICOM has done just the opposite. Uh, it has fostered uh, military coups. It has operated in conjunction. It has coincided with uh, the emergence of so-called Islamic jihadist groups, uh, which have uh, fought against any uh, progressive uh, developments that are taking place uh, on the African continent. We see uh, 11 years ago uh, that in the North African state of Libya, the country was blanket uh, bombed. Uh, it was dislocated. The people were dislocated. And today it is a major source of instability uh, throughout uh, North as well as West Africa. Uh, we can see the same situation in other countries uh, where uh, AFRICOM has been involved. In Somalia, for example, uh, they are there. Um, they, the troops were withdrawn uh, during the last days of the Trump administration and then redeployed uh, in the early days of the Biden administration. Yet in Somalia, uh, there have been numerous attacks on civilians, uh, just two major uh, bombings uh, that have taken place within the last uh, week and a half, one in the south in Kismayo, uh, which is a major port city uh, in southern Somalia, and then in Mogadishu, the capital, uh, just this last past weekend, where uh, well over 100 people were killed in these attacks. Now, this is taking place 
supposedly by Islamic jihadist organizations that are carrying these attacks out, is taking place right under the nose of uh, U.S. imperialist forces, uh, hundreds of them that are stationed in Somalia, as well as U.S. Central Intelligence Agency and State Department uh, operatives that are also functioning in Somalia as well. And uh, the U.S. has been instrumental in training uh, the African Union mission to Somalia, which is now known as the African Union transitional mission uh, to Somalia. Uh, but all of these things are taking place, uh, and, it, and they are coinciding uh, with the increased presence of U.S. Uh, Pentagon and intelligence forces uh, on the African continent. Also in the Horn of Africa, they have a base, a large military base in Djibouti, uh, that is, of course, uh, a strategic, uh, strategically located area on the Red Sea uh, near the Gulf of Aden. And, of course, uh, Djibouti has thousands of U.S. troops as well as French troops, yet they have not been able to curtail uh, the ongoing destabilization in uh, Somalia or what is happening in Ethiopia. Uh, where uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Front uh, has, uh, in fact, uh, been carrying out uh, military attacks against the legitimate government of Ethiopia. Uh, just uh, this week, uh, there was an announcement of a peace accord between the uh, TPLF, which is supported by the United States, on the successive U.S. administrations, whether they be Republican or Democrat. And uh, they claim that now they want to disarm and uh, establish uh, peace with the central government in Ethiopia. That remains to be seen, and I think it should be clearly monitored uh, by anti-imperialists and anti-war forces internationally in regard to how this agreement is going to be implemented, implemented in Ethiopia. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Liber, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial 
Hollywood, 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And, uh, well, Jackie, for the 30th consecutive year, the U.N. General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to condemn uh, the U.S. economic blockade of socialist Cuba. And, of course, uh, as usual, the only uh, uh, opposition votes uh, came from the U.S. and Israel, with Brazil and Ukraine abstaining. Uh, Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez uh, said that uh, since 2019, uh, Washington, quote, has escalated the siege around our country, taking it to an even crueler and more humane dimension with the purpose of deliberately inflicting the biggest possible damage on Cuban families. Now, according to Rodriguez, during the first 14 months of the Biden administration, damage to the Cuban economy uh, is estimated at $6.35 billion, which is equal to more than $15 million a day. This is money and resources that have been stolen from the Cuban people, not the Cuban Communist Party, not the individuals that make up the Cuban government, but from the Cuban people in just 14 months. So you can imagine the kind of damage that has been wrought in the decades uh, since uh, the blockade first began in 1959. And uh, I should also note that a part of Joe Biden's uh, policy towards Cuba um, has uh, been uh, including the uh, uh, additional 243 measures that the Donald Trump administration imposed on Cuba that even further tightened the blockade. And I always point this out because, I mean, uh, particularly when it comes to foreign policy and things like this, I mean, someone with Donald Trump, who we were told was going to be our knight in shining armor that was going to come in and reverse all of the uh, backward policies of the Trump administration. But in situations like this, we see a lot of these policies not only maintained, but actually worsened. And so uh, the U.S. and the genocidal apartheid state of Israel continue to be out of step with the rest of the real international community. And of course, uh, in this moment, Cuba um, is still uh, reeling and grappling with very uh, difficult conditions from uh, natural disasters that were compounded by the impacts of the blockade. I'm sure folks remember back in early August when there was a, a huge fire that broke out at one of the major uh, oil storage facilities in Matanzas, which really just uh, uh, dealt a serious blow uh, to that country's uh, electrical system, which was already under extreme stress and things like this. And of course, this led to uh, the deaths of uh, 14 firefighters. And, you know, Jackie, this uh, and I think we noted this yesterday and we were discussing uh, the lead up to the vote with uh, Gloria Lariva. You know, this is a vote that happens every year with the same result. And what it always, always reminds me of 
is how truly isolated the United States is when it comes to geopolitics. Now, that may sound strange because the United States is the imperialist superpower on planet Earth, right? So how could they be isolated? Well, they're isolated because of uh, the greed and avarice of the imperialist system and the capitalist system out of which it springs that uh, it creates uh, this very uh, a poisonous uh, sort of uh, a character with the way that the U.S. engages and really as part of an effort to maintain a complete control over the people's lands and resources of the earth. And so when we see how the real international community is uh, uh, coming together on situations like this and how we often comment on the show about how uh, different governments and uh, different uh, uh, regional associations and also, um, you know, associations across uh, different countries are being developed to try to, you know, lessen uh, the power of the dollar, really trying to overthrow dollar hegemony and really just get the collective, uh, get the foot of U.S. imperial of the of U.S. imperialists, excuse me, of U.S. imperialists, U.S. imperialism. Jesus Christ! I say this word a million times a day, and now I can't say it. But y'all know what I'm saying. To get the boot of U.S. imperialism off the collective neck of uh, the struggling peoples of the earth, and so I think particularly as movement people, Jackie, we have to take note of these sorts of things and understand that we are not alone in understanding uh, of the ravages and impacts of uh, U.S. imperialism. And it should remind us of the importance of not only organizing amongst our class right here in the U.S., but also uh, uh, being in solidarity and building and fighting alongside the struggling peoples of this world. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that it's always good to be reminded of what the actual votes in the United Nations, what they really do reflect. Because we're always told by U.S. politicians, Democratic and Republican, and we're certainly hearing a lot of that from the Biden administration, from Blinken, especially in regard to all of their evil foreign policy, that, you know, the United States has to uphold this uh, uh, international world order and, and, and you know, that the U.S. is this shining beacon of democracy, uh, you know, on, on a hill. But the rest of the world literally does not see the United States that way. And we can, you know, sit here and talk about that and and go out and protest and even give people a political education uh, and, and say that over and over again. But I think highlighting the way the member uh, countries of, of other nations vote in the United Nations against these policies that the U.S. claims they have to uphold in order to defend some type of democracy, I think that really does um, expose, uh, like you said, how isolated in the world the United States really is. Uh, number two, it does expose uh, precisely how the rest of the world, how the leaders uh, and the representatives of the rest of the world see the U.S. and its policies. But I think it also exposes uh, exposes Sean the lack of utility uh, and um, uh, 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 what what's the word I'm looking for uh, viability that the United Nations has. I mean, 183 countries out of the 193 member General Assembly of the United Nations, 185 countries voted 
to end the criminal blockade against Cuba, voted against the US, U.S.'s continued blockade. The U.S. and Israel opposed it. Brazil and Ukraine abstained. And what does the United Nations do to punish or push the United States to do what the rest of the world just reflected is their will for this policy that the U.S. imposes on another country? What does the United Nations do? Nothing. It does absolutely nothing. It listens to and goes along with the United States, basically siding with the, 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 the imperialist uh, hegemon that you just talked about uh, from emanating from the United States and completely ignores the rest of the world that is unified in its solidarity with Cuba and against U- uh, U.S. imperialism. So I think these kinds of issues constantly need to be raised when these uh, um, uh, uh, issues are voted on in the United Nations. We do need to to, I think, more regularly look at what the rest of the world actually thinks as far as the way uh, they vote on these uh, uh, issues of U.S. foreign policy, because I really do believe that this will help us. Uh, I agree with you, Sean. It will help us understand that, no, we are not alone, that we are not all by ourselves fighting inside the beating heart of imperialism. The rest of the world really is kind of waiting for us to be like, but we're... We're standing up. What y'all going to do? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think uh, the quicker we uh, realize the international character of our struggle, uh, the far better off we will be. And switching gears a little bit, Jackie, I was uh, reading this uh, recent piece that was published on uh, uh, The Intercept that was reporting on a leaked documents outlining plans from the Department of Homeland Security to uh, police disinformation and, uh, uh, you know, quote unquote disinformation and basically try to intervene in uh, online discourse. And I'll quote here from the article itself. It says the Department of Homeland Security is quietly broadening its efforts to curb speech it considers dangerous. An investigation by The Intercept found years of internal DHS memos, emails and documents obtained via leaks and an ongoing lawsuit, as well as public documents, illustrate an expansive effort by the agency to influence tech platforms. The work, much of which remains unknown to the American public, came into clear view earlier this year when the DHS announced a new disinformation governance board, a panel designed to police misinformation, parenthetically false information spread unintentionally, disinformation, false information spread intentionally, and malinformation, which is factual information shared typically out of context with harmful intent that allegedly threatens U.S. interests. While the board was widely ridiculed, immediately scaled back and then shut down within a few months, other initiatives are underway as DHS pivots to monitoring social media now that its original mandate, the war on terror, has been wound down. And so uh, it goes on to talk about, (coughs) excuse me, how the U.S. government has been uh, applying pressure to these uh, different platforms, like I noted, to try to kind of shape uh, uh, online discourse. And uh, they actually uh, talk about some meeting minutes that they obtained along with other records um, uh, uh, related to a lawsuit filed by Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who's a Republican, also running for Senate, and uh, discussions reigning from uh, uh, government intervention and online discourse and the scale and scope and the, the depth and, and, and breadth 
depth of that and uh, the mechanics of even a streamlining takedown request for some of this uh, uh, so-called misinformation. Now, I want to quote this uh, another piece here where it says, In a March meeting, Laura Demlo, an FBI official, warned that the threat of subversive information on social media could undermine support for the U.S. government. Demlo, according to the notes of the discussion attended by senior executives from Twitter and J.P. Morgan Chase, stressed that, quote, we need a media infrastructure that is held accountable. And when she says held accountable here, it's clear she means that we need a media infrastructure that will completely uh, censor and suppress any and all narratives and voices that contradict uh, the Washington consensus. Now, this is what was really interesting, because they also report that there's actually a formalized process for government officials to directly flag content on Instagram and Facebook and to request that it be uh, suppressed. And it, this happens through a special Facebook portal that you can only access if you have a government or law enforcement email. I believe they call this the, the content uh, uh, request system. Now, uh, according to a draft copy of the DHS's Quadrennial Homeland Security Review, um, the DHS uh, report outlining its strategy and priorities in the coming period say that they plan to target, quote, inaccurate information on a range of topics that include the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and the efficacy of COVID-19, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine. Uh, would you look at that? Now, here's what really got me, Jackie, because uh, the article goes on to say that before the 2020 presidential election, uh, a number of uh, these huge tech companies, including Discord, Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, Verizon Media, LinkedIn, Microsoft, and Wikipedia were having monthly meetings, monthly meetings with the FBI and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, also known as CISA, along with other government representatives. And uh, according to NBC News, these meetings were a part of uh, a still ongoing initiative between the government and the private sector uh, to discuss how these firms will handle this quote unquote misinformation. Now, there's a lot that's bound up in this, right? And a lot of this, I think, dovetails with uh, things that we point out often here on the show. When I talk about how these tech companies collude with the state to suppress alternative viewpoints and perspectives. Now, people may hear that and think that I'm just on some uh, a wingnut rant or that I'm some kind of conspiracist. But not only have we seen it play out, we now have it documented, in fact, that the U.S. government absolutely is in direct contact with these tech platforms that we use every single day. These these platforms that have become a part of our lives in order uh, uh, to uh, uh, tailor and curate, if you will, uh, uh, the narratives that are there to support um, the Washington consensus. Now, it, it isn't eminently clear how all of this actually impacts our experience on these platforms, but day to day, nevertheless, we know of the relationship. This is what we mean when we talk about the profound level of propaganda that the American consciousness is subject to on an incessant basis. It isn't just uh, uh, the corporate press. It isn't just, uh, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. Certainly it is, but it's also these uh, uh, tech platforms.
You know what I mean? That try to present themselves at these places where, oh, everybody can just come. We can have a good time, say whatever, do whatever. But no, we should always remember that these are absolutely capitalist ventures. They are profit making uh, institutions. We are the product on these platforms. That's why we're able to use them for free. And of course, uh, uh, since all of these elements, both these tech platforms and the government are part of the ruling class, it's clear uh, uh, what the aim is in terms of the strengthening of these relationships. Right. And I mean, I remember when we reported, uh, uh, you know, a little earlier this year that, uh, you know, the Biden administration was uh, meeting with TikTok stars to make sure that they had the quote unquote right view of Russia and things like this. So that's how deep all of this goes. But you see, the average American walking around right now is so certain that they can trust what they see and hear from these platforms. They are so insert, they are so certain that they are well informed because they consume a steady diet of corporate media. And anything that contradicts that must be lunacy. You know what I mean? So I just want us to understand all of these different dynamics that are going on and have been going on for quite some time here in the United States and how the surveillance state and the suppression that is inherent to it is directly connected to our plight and to our condition as poor working and oppressed people and as such have to be a, a part of the, uh, the uh, targets, if you will, as we continue to organize. Yeah, I mean, and I think this is why all of the the conversation, while I think it's a valid conversation to have uh, about, you know, Elon Musk buying Twitter and the changes he plans to make. You know, now I think the latest controversy is uh, that he's going to you know charge people uh, to charge users eight dollars uh, for their check mark that they, you know, got for having a bunch of followers. And now AOC is is deeply enmeshed in that argument. OK, fine. but. This is why that kind of argument that people are having, at least on the level that people have been having it, Sean, is such a distraction from the actual problem mm -hmm. that exists that Elon Musk purchasing Twitter and bringing it private actually makes this issue worse. As I've, I mean, you would think, well, it can't be it can't be worse. But think about it. The board of Twitter, they were already meeting with the FBI. And that was found out right now. Elon Musk is taking the company private and nothing really has to be <laughs> investigated or documented. And he's Elon Musk. Right. So, you know, <laughs> as you as you say, you know, our favorite apartheid American, he's not going to follow any kind of rules. So who knows what is going to be done with Twitter as far as surveillance and the intelligence agencies uh, at this point. And that's the real issue. All of these conversations that we have about social media and, uh, you know, its utility and how much time we should spend on it and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's great, but we miss the big picture. That all of these companies, all of our favorite social media companies, they're owned by a big old tech company and they answer to no one. They answer to absolutely no one. And, and just the fact that, um, you know, the tech companies 
can get an audience with the White House. Mm -hmm. The influencers can get an audience with the White House. But you and me, who these people (laughs) keep coming to us and telling us we need to vote for them to save us from the other guys. They don't they don't listen to anything that we say we want and need. That, that's the, the second issue. And the third issue in this whole thing is, folks, please don't get confused by the fact that it was a Republican who brought this lawsuit uh, uh, against uh, the FBI, because trust me when I tell you, the only reason Missouri, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt has brought this lawsuit, and Eric Schmidt is the Republican who's running for Senate, the only reason he brought this lawsuit is because he doesn't want GOP, uh, uh, the GOP base, the Trump publicans to be caught up in this dragnet. Mm. I, I mean, they, they are completely happy with the FBI and DHS and the other internal U.S. alphabet agencies violating all of our rights. But they don't want their people getting caught up in that in this dragnet. So that is the only reason. This is the only reason that they were talking about defunding the FBI. Right. Right? You know, doggone well, they're not actually going to do this. So when we look at this, this issue from every angle that I can think of, we really have to, I think, step back from I'm not going to say our reliance on social media. Because I think I think I think the cat's out of the bag on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just it, it it is what it is. But I think we need to be a lot more clear headed and clear eyed in our relationship to social media and social media's relationship to us. Mm. And when we talk about social media, we have to stop thinking we're talking about these individual social media platforms. We're actually talking about corporate America, and we're actually talking about the government. Yeah, definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I'm in here chopping it up with my co-host, Mrs. Jackie Lukeman. Big shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Also can get some questions in there as well, if you all like. And uh, Jackie, I'm going to make a, a, a really hard pivot uh, into some uh, pop culture stuff, right? right. Um, a little while ago, you and I were talking about the show uh, P-Valley. My favorite. And and at that point, I had not seen it. And um, after some after some struggle, some some organizing, <laughs> a.k.a. me uh, biting the bullet and paying for stars, um, I've now seen both seasons. Uh, and uh, I will not be giving spoiler alerts on this because I think that second season wrapped up in like August. So you definitely uh, should have seen it by now. And so, you know, it's a, it's it's a unique show, I think. For television, I just I mean, we've had we've had black centered shows 
based in the South before, you know, shows like uh, Queen Sugar, mm-hmm. which was really good. Um, Greenleaf, you know, there's a number of not them that, that we could name. Hmm? Greenleaf is not that good. You, you you didn't like Greenleaf? Oh my God, no. Oh, hold on, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Why didn't you like Green? Hold on now, Jackie. We we both church kids up in here. You didn't enjoy watching that mess every week. I I think because I think because I really have a problem with um, and I don't care what kind of show it is. I I hate overacting. It, oh. it just I, it's just like come on now. If you want me to take this seriously, please don't don't. Don't represent your role as this campy over the top. If you're supposed to be serious, be serious. Don't. And and it just it just seemed like, I mean, you know, church family, church life drama. Trust me when I tell you it's dramatic enough. (laughs) You don't need to add, you know, any extra into it. So, yeah, that's why I just kind of didn't like Greenleaf. Well, I mean, I feel you. I think for me, I mean, first of all, um. Keith David finally got his star turn. And I actually feel like uh, he's one of he he's one of, I think, quite a few black actors, particularly black men who, by all accounts, should have been leading men. Keith David should have been a leading man. Uh, Delroy Lindo should have been a leading man. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the list goes. I mean, I know how you feel about Delroy, yes, but he's also yes. a really good actor. Right. And so, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And uh, but I got to say. I love overacting. It's great. You want to know what my favorite overacting of all time is? What's that? Eamon Walker as Kareem Saeed in Oz. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. man. Okay. okay. That was wonderful. Okay. I, yeah. I loved that character because he's like this militant uh, black Muslim dude, you know, who's obviously supposed to be like a, you know, kind of like a, a Nation of Islam, Black Panther mix type of person with his kufi and all mm-hmm. and like you know he he was he was strong he was smart he was a he was a great leader he was self-righteous <laughs> extremely he was flawed and <laughs> very and just i mean the way particularly with his he would just do this stuff with his mouth when he talked <laughs> it, it looked like he was trying to bite his inner lip <laughs> with like the bottom row of his teeth it looked so crazy. It was so hilarious. And to me, added so much of the show. And frankly, it struck a chord as being true because it means, you know, you meet people like that and they take themselves so seriously right. that they come off kind of silly. Right, right. You know and, what and I mean? You know, it was funny. It's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, Abdus, <laughs> he got me watching Oz. And I that was the right. out of out of the Sopranos. And, and, and we'll, we'll get back to P-Valley, yeah. honest. But out of The Sopranos, which he got me to watching, out of The Wire, which he got me to watching, Oz was the one show that I couldn't. I was just like, no, this is too much. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't do it. But he said that that character is so reflective of the the brothers who are in prison, who who. um uh, convert to Islam, and and you can see that they're still kind of fighting their their true nature. It's like mm. you know the, the their conversion to Islam on the inside is 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 it's a survival tactic, right? right? And and you could see that they were kind of struggling with themselves. So you know, and and for you know for folks who do not know, um, you know my beloved As- Abdus did do some time, uh, you know, but. And and from that time, the kind of lessons that, you know, 
came from it. And the way that there is a society within prisons Mm -hmm. and it can either be dysfunctional or it can either be, uh, you know, a space of protection or can either be actually really revolutionary, depending on who the person is, who is the leader or appointed the leader of that society. Really, really telling. Um, so I, I thought that his insights on that character and the whole just the whole he's like, yeah, some of that stuff. You're not going to see that kind of stuff in most most prisons. He's like that, that. That's that's Hollywood stuff. And he's like, maybe California. (laughs) Nobody's like on the East Coast. Yeah, not 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 a whole lot of that, that kind of stuff. But but that was interesting about about that character that you brought up. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, Mumia has spoken before about Oz and I think Mm -hmm. the um, the portrayal of prison life more broadly. And I swear, if I remember correctly, he was saying that, you know, cats would be in prison watching Oz and laughing. Right. Because they knew that that wasn't was really like, this is how not, it was. This is not happening. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and the interesting thing about Oz, it brought some characters to TV that we hadn't really met before. We hadn't really met a five percenter character on a television show. And so we had Lord Jamar as Supreme Allah, and they showed in Oz this, this conflict between Orthodox Muslims mm-hmm. and five percenters who, you know, advocate uh, the idea basically of self-divinity, you know, this idea that the black man is God and stuff like that, right. which is like a real contradiction that exists in real life. Uh, shout out to Ricky Ryan in the By Any Means Necessary chat. She said, Lynn Whitfield is the right kind of overacting. I agree 100%. Okay, I'll give her that. Like okay. that, because that, that character that she played, that's a real person. That, well, yeah, that's true. Like the, 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 the sadiddy <laughs> Southern preacher's wife who really ain't got no life because you're not supposed <laughs> to have your own life when you're a preacher's wife and you've got all these talents and gifts, but that's supposed to be uh, uh, subverted to whatever your husband as the preacher has going on. And frankly, just kind of nasty and, <laughs> and bougie. Like that is a real person. I know people like that Lynn Whitfield character who don't have half the wealth that she has. Uh-huh. So it's yeah. even more annoying. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so this, this is what I mean. But, but, but circling back to P-Valley, right? For those who don't know, P-Valley is a show centered around a uh, gentleman's establishment, let's say, in the <laughs> fictional uh, Mississippi Delta town of Chuckalisa. Which, which is, I always chuckle when I think, because I mean, that sounds like a real place, right? right? And uh, the sort of staff and management of the establishment called The Pink and uh, uh, sort of the broader characters in this town. First of all, I think that they really nailed the dynamics of the small southern town. Yes, they did. You've, you got this, this place, everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody grew up there, stayed. You got someone who maybe went off to the big city, comes back. You know what I'm saying? It's the dude who sat next to you in eighth grade and y'all still, you know, got some kind of dealings in some kind of way. You know what I mean? So I think they they did that well. They, they set the vibe, I think, really, really good. The dialogue for me is a bit over the top. It's a bit yeah. over the top to me. And, and the reason I say that is because the, the the writing of it sometimes it feels like they try to just jam pack slang words in a way 
that real people don't actually speak. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And this is part of a broader issue I have with how Hollywood portrays the South and Southerners. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone kind of talks and acts like, you know, rich Texan off the Simpsons or something like that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Just this very cartoony Mm -hmm. way of thinking about an entire region. But I I think that that, that's more of a nitpick. And so they did a great job, I think, establishing the the Chuggalisa world in that first season and really expounding upon it in the second season that is set during the onset of COVID, which, as one can imagine, presented more than a few complications for their line of work. And uh, just all of the the different sort of relationships uh, in, in the characters, I think. And also, look, the casting is really good. Amazing. Because yes. Lil Murder, man, he looks like a rapper named Lil Murder. I, I mean, I, and I didn't need, I wasn't even mad because you know how I am with rapper names. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why is a grown man named Lil anything? That's, right. I, why do you let people come on? But I, I mean, this do he plays the heck out of that character. And, and none of the characters, Sean, are caricatures even even though some of the dialogue is like really weird because the timeline seems to me kind of to be off or maybe I'm confusing the timeline because the first season starts off with a a uh the aftermath of a flood mm-hmm. that affects the south and of course we're thinking Katrina but right. maybe it's not Katrina but you know this this flood that kind of literally washes this woman up <laughs> in this town um is is a part of uh part 1 but even though there are different aspects of different kinds of relationships and honestly every kind of relationship that you can think of the show i think does a great job um, just making people human, just showing people in different professions, in different uh, uh, aspects of society, in different kinds of, of situations, not making people caricatures of their circumstances, not making people heroes, you know, mm-hmm. that somebody that has to rise. But no, people are just human. Mm-hmm. And and I think they do a, a great job of that in in pretty consistently, but particularly with uh, um, uh, Clifford, Uncle Clifford, mm-hmm. and and Lil Murder. Mm-hmm. That I just think, you know, I, if you watch the evolution of that that storyline, and just cannot look at that and just cheer for love, yeah. something's wrong with you. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you raised that because there is something so sweet about their dynamic, right? And Uncle Clifford, he's a unique person because they frame him as a character, as someone who has basically always been accepted for who he is. And uh, for those who don't know, the Uncle Clifford, Uncle Clifford character uh, is gay and uh, sort of has this, uh, you know, flamboyant way of dressing with the clothes and the hair and things like that. And, and Little Murder, on the other hand, is, you know, basically your kind of macho rapper guy, like, you know, just like anyone you, you would think of. But what's so interesting is how they they kind of subvert expectations because it's Little Murder who is pressing to not only be with Clifford, but to be with Clifford publicly. And Clifford told him, he said, you know what we got isn't meant for the light. 
And so, uh, and murder's like, so what, we're supposed to do our thing in the dark? You know what I'm saying? And in Clifford's mind, the answer is yes, because that's the only kind of relationship he's ever known. But Lil Murder is trying to show him that he deserves so much more and can have it. You know what I'm saying? And that's a, that, that's a really interesting thing. I'm going to tell you, and speaking of Lil Murder, I appreciate the fact that, that I, well, I actually don't know if the, if, the, if the actor is doing the rapping. But nonetheless, the soundtrack to uh, uh, P-Valley is amazing. If you're a, a Southern rap fanatic like myself, it is a smorgasbord. And even the, st- and, and typically when TV shows make original music, it's terrible. What was that show with Terrence Howard and Taraji P. Henson? I always want to call it power, but it's not power. It's uh, with the lions. Oh, oh, uh, uh, Empire. Yeah, Empire. That music was terrible. <laughs> that be- <laughs> Some of it was catchy, like the like the Jesse Smollett song, You're So Beautiful. I mean, that was catchy, but it, it, it was trash. It, it was yeah, it, it was not good music. And that's the case for most uh for most original music in television. But the original stuff we hear in people, I think, is pretty good, along with uh, uh, some of the other music. And I'm going to tell you who else I really enjoyed as a character. And I'm really sad that they're gone. And that's Isaiah Washington. As the first black mayor of Chugalisa. <laughs> now, you want to talk about knowing people like him? There are two people in this show who remind me of relative, literal like relatives of mine who, thank God, they don't listen to this show. <laughs> because, you know, Russians <laughs> and all. But uh, uh, that character and and uh, Woodbine, the, uh, the mama. Okay. Look here. That's the villain. Yeah. Look here. I, I'm that's just like, that's that dude is Isaiah Washington's character just like reminded me of why I never visit these folks <laughs> when I go home. home. <laughs> and my grandmother would always be like, you need to go and visit. I'm not going over there because that man is a sleazy politician. And, and he actually is a politician. In, wow. in, yeah, he is. a politician. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I, I just like, Mm-mm, nope. <laughs> so yeah, that that and and Woodbine, yeah, there are, and and that's kind of the realness of these people. I mean, like they, the writers, uh, who who is Notori Hall, I, I believe, she charactered so much of of the nuance, uh, good or good and bad, of the motivation behind why people act the way they do in these situations. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Sean especially in small town politics and morality and and racial issues which mm-hmm. in small towns in America are all intertwined yep. you cannot escape any of that yeah totally totally yeah and i mean the mayor he, he literally he's he's like the person you describe it's like if you if your trifling uncle became mayor mm-hmm. you know what i mean and you know who else is a really interesting character and it's like He's trying uh, very hard to not be tragic. Oh, I can't think of his name, but it's 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 the it's the mixed guy whose father was the racist white yes. dude and his mama was the maid, yes. and they were tra- and all of that. I am fascinated by him because he's lived his life as the help son, 
he, he, he's living a dynamic that we know. Well, we know it from slavery, but we also know it continued long after that. And I actually don't think people like him are terribly uncommon in terms of their, 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 uh, their lineage and their backstory. But for the first time in his life, he has lineage, he has a uh, leverage. He has something that he can hold over his fully white brothers, right? Something that he never had before. And he clearly relishes the fact that he can do it. And there are times where I wonder, like with these, you know, business deals that, that he tries to make, I wonder, is it, is it really a, a money thing or is this just, is this just basically like almost like you exacting revenge or getting like a personal vendetta, like you're finally able to strike back some kind of way at the people who have seen you as less than your whole life. And one, one scene that I think really highlighted that is when him, the two brothers and Buddy, who moved from Chuck at least to Atlanta and came back to try to do the casino deal. And they had a meeting and uh, one of the white brothers tells his half black brother, yeah, fix me a drink or whatever. And the black brother kind of gives this look. It's like, so he, he, st they still see him as the help, as a slave. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so I know if it was me, I would love the opportunity to throw a monkey wrench in their plans. And so to just watch his motivations, I think it is very, very cool. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here as we continue Shout out to Prester John, too, in the By Any Means Necessary chat, who said that Sergeant Waters, Adolf Caesar from Soldier Story, one of the most hated yet complex characters in film history, best performance. Prester John, I'm of the opinion that Adolf Caesar is the greatest villain in black cinematic history. Agreed. And I'm saying that only based off of two roles. Sergeant Waters in Soldier Story. An old mister in the color purple. Exactly. You only know that per that that person from one of those two. Right. Because they're so iconically awful. Right. They are so. And, and Sergeant Waters, with, with, with the complexity Pastor John is talking about, you're, you're talking about a man who is shot through, racked with self-hatred. Mm hmm. And he he exacts his self-hatred onto the other Black soldiers, you know what I mean, right? And so it's 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 just a, a deeply uh, uh, interesting thing how that plays out, and and yeah, when you talk about old Mister, I mean he in my in my mind he's really like the villain of that story because old Mister is the reason why we get Mister. The right. Danny Glover character. Right. And Mister is the reason we get Harpo. So we got three generations of uh uh, uh abusive men, right? Violent men towards the women and children in their life. 
and all these sorts of things, all because of this one. And you can just see how that trickles down. And the thing to me about the color purple is I swear that in Harpo, I feel like at a certain point you almost see a remorse from him taking after his father and his grandfather. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think he got with somebody else. I can't remember if he actually remarried or not, but, you know, but he loved Sophia. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And we know he loved her. But he, he, he wasn't equipped to love her more than his idea about uh, what manhood was and what relationships should be like. You know what I mean? And to be sure, this is not something that is uh, uh, particular to that period. You know, we can't just pawn it off on like antiquated ideas because uh, these ideas still uh, uh, very much persist. Uh, let's see. Many now says, yo, my mom loves the color purple so much. She can just watch it whenever it comes on. I don't know how she does it. (laughs) Listen, movies like the color purple and coming to America are just part of the black American lexicon. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We can quote the entire thing and we can laugh and cry at it. Like it's the first time we've seen it, even though we've all seen it a million times. You know what I mean? And, uh, actually I remember I was an undergrad one time. And I had a DVD of the color purple and I showed it to my roommate who had never seen it, which surprised me. And so he watched it. I just kind of going about my business and uh, I come back after it's over. and He looks at me and he goes, dog, this movie is so sad. And I looked at him I'm like, what do you mean? This movie is hilarious. <laughs> but I thought about it. I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of what happens is like it's incredibly, incredibly tragic. Sad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's actually a fact. But it, it's just something about when you see something so many times, the serious tones just kind of dissipate. Right. And you, you even find humor in the serious moments. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, it, it's definitely it's definitely way up there, I think, you know, for, for all the criticism that I know it's gotten over the years. Oh, yeah. Uh, another thing that I wanted to uh, touch on uh, Professor John, you funny. Another thing I wanted to touch on in terms of um, what's the name? Uh, P Valley is uh the spiritual aspect of things, and I mm-hmm. and I just thought it was real interesting how they did that because in the first season it's you know what you would think you know typical small town church stuff or whatever, mm-hmm. but in the second season they hit you over the head with a uh, hoodoo. Oh yeah, you know what I mean, oh, and yeah. uh, and I can't remember which season it was. We were well, it must have been the first season because the mayor did it. Mm-hmm. He he basically poured out a libation, right? You know what I'm saying right. to Obatala mm-hmm. and a couple of others, right? And then following the events of the season finale, they have to by they I mean um, what's the name Uncle Clifford, uh, old girl from Texas, Autumn Night, and. Mercedes, the the star attraction at the pink, right? They all go to see Diamond, who used to work security at the pink. He was the no-nonsense security guard at the pink. He left after the events of the season finale and is now doing other things, but they still come to him because he was caught up in it. And, you know, how he put, and like, you know, you saw like her flipping and all these sorts of things. And he like took something. They didn't, they didn't, it was shrouded in shadow, but you know, it weighed seven pounds. Right. You're talking about seven, seven pounds, pounds of, pressure. of pressure. Yeah, yeah. And, but they're, uh, but when they're viewing it, they're not in disbelief because right. they can't be. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it 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 kind of, it legitimizes what Diamond is doing in a way that we don't normally see in television and cinema when it comes to these, you know, uh, black folk traditions, if we want to call them that. Right. You know what I mean? They're almost, you know, they're, they're like lampooned or, or sort of uh, laughed off as simple backwoods superstition. And, you know, I thought it was cool how Diamond, he even he has a. He, he took the ring mm-hmm. of the guy who was killed in the season finale as a part of a, a ritual altar, or an altar right? mm-hmm. to, to keep, basically to keep his right, spirit away. protection altar, yeah. yeah. Because he told, he told some woman he was dealing with, uh, he was kind of breaking down what it was or something. No, it was one of them who were basically like, well, why are you holding on to evidence, basically, mm-hmm. of the crime? <laughs> right. And he was like, look, he ain't finna be riding me. <laughs> exactly. You know? <laughs> so basically, he understood that had he not gone through this process and this ritual, well, then he would have to deal uh, with uh, an unsettled spirit, which is not something that you can uh, so easily shake off. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see more of the characters' backstories be revealed uh, in the upcoming seasons. I really hope they stick with that because they gave us, they gave us a lot on. Uh, Keyshawn. Yeah. They gave us a lot about mm-hmm. how she met her uh her racist boyfriend, mm-hmm. her racist white boyfriend. Racist and it's so uh, funny. Yeah. Even before he said the N-word on the show, it's just his whole vibe was oh, like, because look, yeah. we're from the South, so we know. So we, yep. there's some there's some white folks that walk around and just look like the N-word is just constantly on they, the tip of their tongue. They say it so bad. Like but perpetually. They, they can't. Right. You know? you know what I mean? And 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 they have this 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 veneer of uh, welcome and you know oh you know I've gotten over my family's racist history they from the richest white family in a small southern town you know what their family's history is yeah. come on yeah. <laughs> and so it, it's yeah there's that whole thing but you know your point about about the the hoodoo I think is so great because I think it juxtaposes really nicely with the 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 overarching um influence of mainstream religion in in the black community, especially in the South. But also it shows how, you know, as you said, Sean, uh, what really is African spirituality that that we will call, um, you know, roots, because <laughs> that's what we call it in the South or, you know, conjuring. Right. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it, this is all stuff, folk healing, you know, go dig up this sassafras, uh, the root of a sassafras tea and, you know, uh, r- the root of a sassafras tree and and make a tea and and, you know, uh, say this person's name several times. Put this person's name in a jar and go bury it. Or, you don't need everybody's spaghetti. Woo, man. <laughs> <laughs> All kinds of stuff, you know. Don't leave your shoes under somebody's mm, right, bed. Come right. on now. See, don't sweep their feet. We say all these things as if they are just harmless kind of old country folk sayings, but they're they're actually rooted in a very very long tradition mm. of African spirituality that I don't think we even realize we're holding on to, but we're shamed 
because of our acceptance of mainstream Christianity um, from acknowledging that that is a part of us and it is a legitimate part of us. And that, I think, was the beauty of that scene with Diamond, who is a, a hoodoo priest. And, you know, the reason, as you said, those characters, as they were looking on, they couldn't be like, oh, this is a bunch of foolishness because, come on, we all know better, <laughs> you, know? Yeah, you know? And it's funny how even those kind of things can show up for us, even in the most kind of uh, casual of ways. Like, I was thinking about my, my grandmama, who, who's from uh, Sweetwater, Alabama. And my mother told me when, when I was a baby... She had a lot of uh, trouble dealing with my hair, if you can imagine me having hair. <laughs> and so basically she was like, you know, I'm just going to cut this boy's head. That's, that's just what it is. And my, and my grandmother told her, she said, if, if you cut that boy's head before he's a year old, mm-hmm. he'll never talk. <laughs> and I, I, I think she, she, she was wrong on that one. <laughs> she, she, was, she was wrong on that one. God rest her soul. But this, this is the kind of... Uh, this is the kind of uh, thing that that is imbued uh, all throughout our culture and really carried us through. And also, I mean, what you're speaking to, like the um, like like that, that, that uh, what we could maybe call an indigenous medicinal knowledge. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because, look, I mean, if you black in America, you, you, you have a relative somewhere that can tell you about an uncle or a grandparent that could walk off in the woods and get a leaf yep. or a root and like you say, boil up some tea or, you know, rub some liniment oil or some all over them. And before you know, your good is new. Matter of fact, my mother, she told me that uh, her grandfather uh, uh, used to, I think they, what they call it, like a divining rod. Oh, yeah. She said that he would go and he would pick up like a particular kind of stick mm-hmm. and he would just hold it. Yep. And we'll, and we'll move. Mm-hmm. And we'll stop moving. Wherever it pointed, that's where water that's was. That's where water was, yeah. He would dig a well. Absolutely. And it's just like, how? <laughs> you know? It's just so weird. You know, people make this joke on, on a social media like we're, we're losing recipes. But I think, I mean, over time, I think we really start to, to lose some of this, uh, some of this, some of this uh, knowledge. You know what I mean? This, this, this knowledge that, that, that really carried us through. But, 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 but like I say, it really is, frankly, it's pretty uh, gratifying to see that reflected in television because we don't really see it. And particularly with, frankly, a lot, the ways that a lot of uh, black shows are sort of written and framed and produced to where it feels like they're basically pulling their plot lines from like social media. And I'm talking about stuff like insecure and stuff like that. And you just kind of roll your eyes at it. It just feels like a desperate attempt to try to seem hip and, and with it. But I mean, to me, it's just kind of corny and, and, and it makes for a product that can't really stand the test of time because it's too closely tied to these, uh, to these uh, 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 elements of the present, these particular cultural elements, you know what I mean? And so, you know, I, I do definitely appreciate it on that, uh, on that note. And, you know, I, I've ranted about uh, Insecure here on the show before. I, I won't do it again, but suffice to say, I, I, there's sort of a palpable uh, class uh, sort of element, character, I should say, to the way shows like that are really produced. It's like that black excellence thing. 
that I think what we were talking about either uh, today or or yeah, we were talking about it yesterday in, in reference to uh, Howard's homecoming. It really feels like that. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.